Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Hey there, welcome to Vanity Fair's special coverage, Fox on Trial. I'm Brian Stelter. Fox News, with its billionaire owner Rupert Murdoch, has been a force in TV and the GOP for more than a quarter century. Right now, though, for the first time, the network is in real peril because of the way it promoted those crank conspiracy theories in 2020. We don't know how many votes were stolen on Tuesday night. We don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, were created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez. She will have almost single-handedly uncovered the greatest crime in the history of this country, and no one will be more grateful for that than us. Uh, one source says that the key point to understand is that this Smartmatic system has a back door, allowing an intervening party a real-time understanding of how many votes will be needed to gain an electoral advantage. Are you saying the states that use that software did that? Well, I know I can prove that they did it in Michigan. I can prove it with witnesses. Massive defamation lawsuits are threatening to cost the network billions. The first such case, lodged by Dominion Voting Systems, demands $1.6 billion. And Dominion is about to have its day in court. Actually, five or six weeks in court. The trial is set to start in Delaware next week, on April 17th. Murdoch and other Fox leaders will have to testify if they are called. So will stars like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. Of course, it's possible there will be a last-minute settlement, but my sense is that Dominion really seriously wants to see this through. I've been covering Fox for 20 years, most recently at CNN. I wrote a book all about Donald Trump and Fox called Hoax. And now I'm a special correspondent at Vanity Fair for the trial. So from opening arguments all the way through deliberations, we're going to be covering all of it here every Thursday until we get a verdict. The best way to start is at the beginning by talking about the patriarch, Rupert Murdoch himself. And we are here with the perfect guest for that. Vanity Fair special correspondent Gabe Sherman, author of the acclaimed book about Fox and Roger Ailes titled The Loudest Voice in the Room, and now the author of the brand new May cover story about Rupert titled The King's Dominion. Gabe, welcome. Good to be here, Brian. You have a staggering amount of new reporting about the Murdochs and about Fox. You say this Dominion lawsuit is the worst crisis at the network you've ever seen. How did it get to this point for Fox? This is striking at the core of Fox's business. Well, uh, we could spend the rest of the show uh, unpacking that. Um, I think the the headline or the short answer is that, you know, Fox News radicalized its audience over the past 25 years to believe in conspiracy and paranoia and grievance, so much so that Fox and Rupert Murdoch in particular 
has become a prisoner to the audience. And Fox was punished in 2020 by committing an act of journalism, reporting the legitimate outcome of the 2020 election. And what did the Fox audience do? They started changing the channel in droves to even more conspiracy-minded networks like Newsmax and One America News. And Murdoch and the rest of the Fox brass saw the decline in ratings and panicked. And as Dominion alleges in the suit, their solution was to indulge these conspiracy theories in hopes of winning back the Trump audience. And so that dynamic of a network whose own success might be its undoing is really the stuff of high drama and why I love doing this piece. (laughs) Fox's response is basically, we were just covering the news. We were just covering what the president of the United States was saying. Um, do Do you laugh that off? Well, I mean that's that's clearly their argument. They're they're making a, a First Amendment argument. But as the as the judge has ruled um, in, in these preliminary hearings, you know, there's a lot of skepticism of that. And uh, I cannot wait, and I'm sure you're the same as well, to see uh, the Fox hosts Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, uh, and the executives like Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan on the stand, having to answer for coverage that by their own words, they knew was false. That's what's so remarkable. You and I have anonymous sources inside Fox that they share with us what it's like, but we've never seen it uh, in in emails and texts. We've never seen these, these figures in their own words on the record. And so far, we've only seen them in legal filings, you know, through the discovery process. We could potentially hear from them in their own words on the stand. This is a, this is a reckoning for Fox, no matter what happens to, uh, to the verdict. You know, even if Fox prevails... I think, you know, forever in American history, this, the network will be, you know, exposed as a pure propaganda arm. The Dominion filings have publicized uh, documents that make a, you know, compelling case that Fox News has um, fundamentally damaged uh, American politics and trust in, in American media by broadcasting things that their own executives and talent knew to be false. Um, I, I just think Dominion has done an incredible public service by already putting these documents on the record. Right. The Dominion's won the public relations battle, whether they win the legal battle or not. Um, what surprised you the most in the filings that poured out in January and February and March? Well, number one, I think the fear that Fox News had of their own audience. You know, as you and I have covered Fox News for years and and when Roger Ailes, the network's former CEO and founder, ran the network, one of his you know superpowers, he had a, a very uh, a lot of a lot of faults and um, and terrible things. But one of his superpowers was that he was able to see around the around the the corner of politics and steer his audience to where he needed them to be. And you know, in the wake of Ailes's um, ouster from the network uh, after that horrific sexual harassment scandal. And then his ultimately his death, you know, Fox News was rudderless. There was a leadership vacuum and the, and the executives that stepped in to replace him, you know, starting at the top, Suzanne Scott, they're not programming Svengali's. What they could do is look at the overnights. They can look at the ratings and put on the air things that appeal to the Fox audience. And the number one thing Fox audience wanted to see um, from 2016 going forward was positive news about Donald Trump. And so they basically just fed this audience day in and day out more and more, you know, extreme things promoting the Trump presidency. You know, many uh, reporters and and analysts have described Fox in the Trump years as state TV. And I think that's a a credible argument. 
And um, but by doing that, they basically turned over control of Fox News to to the audience. And so when I read these filings and I see uh, you know email threads from Suzanne Scott and and Rupert Murdoch saying that they have to win back the audience by putting these phony election claims on air. Just the irony of some of the most powerful media people in the world essentially feeling powerless. I mean, they felt powerless um, because the, the audience was more loyal to Trump than they were to Fox News. So now, through the discovery process in this legal battle, we've, we've read all these emails from Rupert Murdoch that were always meant to be private. These emails where he is uh, dissing Trump, or actually, Gabe, dissing's not nearly strong enough a word. I mean, tell us about that relationship and how it clearly broke apart. Yeah, Brian, you know, um, for years now, we've heard, you know, anonymous sources inside Fox News and the Murdoch empire talk about how, you know, personally, Murdoch was appalled by Trump. Um, he thought he was, you know, uh, an idiot who thought he was unqualified to be president. Uh, on a policy level, he disagreed with Trump on, on immigration and free trade. Here we are in Murdoch's own words, emailing and texting his colleagues, saying things that, that Trump was, quote, a sore loser and was saying things that were, quote, crazy. As a reporter who's covered this world, it's just amazing that we now see the very things that we've been printing uh, for years. Uh, now we're seeing in their own words that it's been true all along. <laughs> so now that we're on the eve of this actual trial, the opening arguments and all the rest, uh, do you have any theories on why there has not been a settlement? Well, I'm preface everything by saying I'm not a lawyer, so <laughs> I can't give you the legal reasons why there's not uh, a settlement. I think one thing is clearly money, right? Um, I think it's important to put into context that uh, Dominion is suing a company that is a shadow of its former self. You know, Rupert Murdoch sold a vast majority of his empire to Disney in 2018 um, and shrunk down the company essentially to a broadcast network, Fox News, and some newspapers and book publishers. So this is a much smaller company than it was um, you know, as, as recent as five years ago. Right. So the $1.6 billion that Dominion is asking is, is very material. Now, I don't think uh, the Murdochs uh, believe Dominion is worth anywhere near $1.6 billion. I think, you know, D the Murdoch world believes that Dominion is, you know, asking for this ridiculous sum and, right. and trying to sort of bully. So this is a game of chicken. There's a little bit of brinksmanship going on. But, um, if there is going to be a settlement, you know, the clock is ticking. Is it as simple as the following sentence? Rupert Murdoch is just stubborn. I mean, you, yeah, I think you're in his brain more than any other reporter. Well, part of me says yes. But then I, I think about the other defining aspect of Murdoch's career, which is that he always looks to the future, right? This is a man who has reinvented himself on uh, three continents, Australia, in the UK, and now in America. And there's been, you know, huge existential scandals in the past, um, you know, from the phone hacking scandal uh, in the UK to, you know, you name it. And every time Murdoch has, you know, essentially done whatever's necessary to, you know, to put it to bed and move forward. So I don't think Murdoch, yes, he is very stubborn, but I also think he is the ultimate pragmatist. Hmm. And if there was a clean way to to make this um, go away, I think he would have done it by now. Uh, I think the stubborn one actually is Dominion. Is Dominion. Um, I think Dom <laughs> Dominion has, and again, I, I have not been in the room for any of these legal discussions. No so reporter I, has. 
But presumably, if there has been settlement talks, a number has been floated, and Dominion, you know, obviously has said no because there's no settlement. I think Dominion is seeing this through because of A, there's financial upside, but B, again, there's just such a public service element to this trial that Dominion has said no. They've drawn a line. And I think this is a really important point, Brian, because you've you've covered you know, the age of misinformation as much as anyone. You know, there is a line, whether it's the Alex Jones lawsuit uh, or this one, where we are now seeing people being held accountable for knowingly broadcasting lies. Mm. And so I think if there is a stubborn one, and I commend them for it, I think it's Dominion, because we're now finally having to see Fox hopefully on trial, answering for the things they put out that were fake. Well, well that's the thing. It, you know, I always think back to November of 2020. And, you know, some folks know I was on CNN at the time. I was on right after Maria Bartiromo's show. And so I would watch her show as I was getting ready for, for my program. And I'd watch this garbage on live television, knowing that millions of people are watching, knowing that the president's watching, knowing that his biggest fans are watching, and thinking to myself, there's, there's nothing that can be done to help these folks figure out what's true. But actually, there is one thing that can be done. Companies can sue. And that's what Dominion's basically, you know, that's, that's, that's the Dominion theory of the case. They have to go to court to take action. Now, the counter to that is, this is, as you said, going to be a First Amendment fight. This is, uh, you know, using the New York Times v. Sullivan standard for actual malice uh, to defame a public figure. It is possible this could have uh, ill effects for the press. Have you thought much about that? Do you want to unpack that for us? Of course. I think there are, you know, unintended consequences to every legal decision that set a precedent um, and, and can be used by bad actors in the, in the future to, to, you know, silence or pressure legitimate reporting. But in this case, I think, you know, and this is the other thing we've seen in the, in the Dominion filings, Brian, is Dominion tried to correct the record behind the scenes yes, for yes. weeks, if not months, right? Yeah, throughout they November, sent yes. them e- yeah. They sent them emails. They called. They offered to have meetings. A legitimate news organization would, if they made a mistake, correct the record and acknowledge it and move on. And Dominion tried to do it the normal way. And Fox said, no, we're going to continue to do it. Mm. And so I I don't see really any other recourse than the courts because they try. I I think frivolous lawsuits where powerful companies and individuals use the the courts to to intimidate reporters is wrong. But I don't think this is that case. And I think think that it's possible that this trial can both hold Fox accountable without undermining the pillar of the First Amendment that that allows media companies to, to broadcast controversial things. Right. And, and even to get it wrong when they make mistakes. Like, that's the dividing line, right, that, that you and I, everybody understands in the journalism world. We all, we all make mistakes, but if it's a mistake versus something that's intentional, um, that's the dividing line, the intentionality. Exactly. Now, Dominion has to prove intentionality. Dominion has to prove that they, they, Fox either knew it or recklessly disregarded the truth. And so that is what we'll be covering in this podcast is can they cross that line? Can they get to that point? We'll be back in just a moment. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
So we, we've established you can't understand this story without understanding Rupert Murdoch. You've spoken with so many Murdoch World insiders for your new cover story. And I know we've got to respect the rules of engagement. We know these people insist on confidentiality to speak. But can you paint a picture for us of what Murdoch World is, of you know, what, what types of people are the insiders that you're going to talk with us about? Well, Brian, you know, what's so fascinating about this family is that at the end of the day, it's, it is a family and with its own internal rivalries and resentments. And, um, and yet the, the consequences for the family dynamics have both you know, huge business implications and political implications. You right. know, when I argue with my, with my family at, uh, at Thanksgiving, you know, the consequences doesn't leave the room. And at Fox, it can have, you know, world changing impact. But, you know, the, the Murdoch world is, you think of it like a court and, you know, the, the, the headline of the piece is the King's Dominion. You know, Rupert Murdoch really does rule his, his media empire like a, like a king. There, he's at the top and you have, you know, the immediate family at the, the innermost circle. So you have um, his, his two uh, adult sons from his second marriage, Lachlan and James and uh, Rupert's daughter, Liz, and then his daughter from his first marriage, Prudence. And then you have his two college-age kids from his um, third marriage to Wendy Dang, uh, Chloe and Grace Murdoch. And so you have, that's the inner ring. And then, you know, on a, on a one ring out, you start to have the 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 heads of you know the the senior executives at the various Murdoch media properties and you know just it sort of spirals outward from there and so these are all courtiers who have their own agendas um, their own sort of levels of influence um, and and that's what makes it so fascinating to, to cover it's not like covering a normal uh, publicly traded company <laughs> um, it's really like covering uh, a, a a royal family in, in a certain way. <laughs> and thankfully, a lot of those folks are still motivated to talk to you and uh, to share what it's like. And I, I get the sense one of the reasons why they might leak is because they are uncertain about the future, just like the rest of us, you know, meaning uh, what's going to happen uh, with the next generation of the Murdochs? Who's going to be in charge? Is it Lachlan, the favored son? Is it James who's on the outside? You know, we, we can get into all of them. But it, it does seem to me like th these insiders, they don't know what's going to happen because they say it's constantly shifting inside. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, there is really a, a proxy war uh, going for the soul of this media empire. Um, and I think the, the, the conflict between James and Lachlan is the clearest distillation of this, of this feud. You have, you know, on, on Lachlan's side, you have someone who's you know, deeply committed to Murdochian right-wing populist politics. You know, and many people say that Lachlan in some ways has become even more conservative than his father. He's um, close personally with Tucker Carlson and has, you know, endorsed more of the extreme elements of, of the current present day Fox News. And then on the other side, you have James Murdoch, who was, you know, trying to steer the empire into a more modern, um, you know, uh, a place in polite society. You know, James and his wife are environmental philanthropists. James famously bought recently the, the holding company that owns the Tribeca Film Festival, you know, James represents a sort of post-Rupert Murdoch world where the Murdoch media would be just like Warner Brothers Discovery or Comcast and or Disney. You know, it would be a large multinational media conglomerate. And, you know, right now in that war, Lachlan has won. He is firmly in charge of Fox Corporation and News Corp, uh, the family's remaining assets. But, you know, the ultimate 
outcome of that will be the decision by the family trust. Because when Rupert Murdoch dies, his four votes on the family trust are distributed equally amongst the children. And not to get too in the weeds for the audience, but basically for, for James Murdoch to get control of the company, he would need his sisters, Liz and Prudence, to back him. Um, because if it's a tie, Lachlan you know, presumably remains in charge. And so nobody knows the outcome uh, of that uh, game of musical chairs. And, uh, and that's what makes it so fascinating. And yes, I think, you know, there are, you know, allies of diff- all the camps in Murdoch world who are trying to position the company for a post-Rupert future. And that's why I think, you know, possibly I got such a vivid picture inside <laughs> the family. Right. So that is why some of them talk to you. And let's just, let's acknowledge this before it gets any weirder. Rupert Murdoch is going to die someday. Rupert Murdoch is uh, not getting younger. He's, he's 92 years old. And as you write, Gabe, he's had numerous health scares, including some I had not heard about until you revealed them in this cover story. Uh, it, it does sound uh, like he is not the, the healthiest, even the healthiest 92-year-old on the planet. And so the speculation about what's going to happen to his businesses only gets louder over the years. Exactly, Brian. And I think that's why, you know, when we see uh, Liz Murdoch sitting in the Fox box at the Super Bowl next to Rupert and Lachlan. Oh, that was such a moment. Everybody wondered, what does that mean? What's she doing with her dad? And we try to read between the tea leaves. And, you know, I think, you know, the James has been agitating for several years now, and especially in the wake of the Charlottesville neo-Nazi march um, to, you know, condemn the most extreme populist uh, Trumpian voices on Fox. And we haven't seen Liz join him. And even though I know in private, I've heard Liz, you know, shares many of James's, you know, left-leaning views. Um, she's not taken that public stand because she wants to have a close relationship with her father. Privately, you know, people say in, Liz Murdoch shares James, J- her brother James Murdoch's liberal views, but she's not taken a public stand. She's not called out mm. um, the pro-Trump voices that were defending Trump in the wake of the Charlottesville neo-Nazi march because she doesn't want to get crossways with her father. And so you have the personal and the political and the, and the financial all intertwined, which makes, you know, just for such a fascinating story. This is not a company that has rigid corporate hierarchies and bureaucracies with, you know, formal succession plans that was built by consultants. You know, it's really the, the internal politics of a family. Yeah. And as you said, Brian, I think anyone who tells you how they know this is going to end is, is probably wrong. Well, when it comes to Elizabeth, for example, you, you quote a source saying she's terrified of Rupert dying mad at her, right? So just wanting to enjoy her, her remaining years with her dad. This is where, of course, you know, how can we not talk about succession in the context mm-hmm. of this story? Um, there's obvious similarities. Every viewer of succession knows the similarities to the real-life Murdoch family. You even suggest in the story that there's been these allegations that maybe some people in the inner circle have leaked ideas to writers for succession. Can you unpack that for us? I'll preface this by saying I have no idea if any members of the Murdoch family or anyone around them has spoken to the writers. So, But what I find fascinating about that uh, bit of reporting is that the Murdoch family is obsessed, capital O, obsessed with the show Succession. Now, they all declare that they never watch it, right. even taking them at their word. The fact is that the writers of Succession are living rent-free inside the heads of the Murdochs. And <laughs> this amazing detail that that came out, that when Jerry Hall was divorcing 
Rupert last year, I heard that in the divorce settlement, one of the terms of her NDA and her divorce settlement was that she was not allowed to feed plot lines and story ideas to the succession writer's room. Amazing. (laughs) So Rupert Murdoch's own divorce lawyers were worried that she would be talking to the writers. Amazing. Stick around. We'll be right back with Gabe Sherman. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about Jerry. So in your article, you have a season worth of new information about this marriage and this divorce. This is this was Murdoch's fourth wife, uh, and you've you've been able to speak with some of her friends, including uh, one on the record. What what did what were what was conveyed to you about that marriage? Yeah, I think um, that was one of the surprising developments of the piece. Is when I really started to get inside the the Rupert Jerry Hall marriage. I think you know Jerry's uh, has very loyal friends, um, and you know they felt that the way in which Rupert coldly cast her aside. Um, you'll read in the piece he divorced her by email. Um, and basically said, you'll be hearing from my lawyers. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, about a year, uh, you know, th- about a year after that, I think the friends and were picking up the pieces and just really felt that Jerry had been ill-treated by the Murdoch empire. And so, you know, I got a, a very detailed picture from, you know, people close to Jerry about what it was like for her to be Rupert's fourth wife. Um, and, you know, one of the things, again, this goes a little bit ties back to the to Dominion case, Brian, mm. you know, one of the tensions inside the Jerry Hall, Rupert Murdoch marriage was COVID-19 and the way in which she thought it was a very serious global health emergency. Rupert was, you know, in his, uh, was around 90 years old, I guess at the time or late at, you know, 89 when the mm-hmm. pandemic started. And Rupert was very and worried she, too. Rupert was scared yes, of the virus and, she, and taking exactly, precautions. Yes. And she, exactly. And so she and Rupert, you know, went into lockdown as all of us did. And it was, you know, while the Fox news hosts were broadcasting hydroxychloroquine and, and, uh, and horse medicine and injecting ourselves with bleach and whatever else Trump was saying, um, you know, Murdoch himself was taking it seriously. But over time, other members of the Murdoch family, from what I've heard, really started to chafe at at Jerry's um, COVID protocols. And there was, you know, growing tension around, around, um, you know, the way in which she was trying to protect Rupert from, you know, being in groups of large people. If Rupert had put on Fox News, um, the very protocols that he was doing himself, following the science, listening to the public health experts, How many thousands of lives might have been saved? And I thought uh, one of the quotes in my piece um, was that uh, Rupert was confronted by a friend um, about the Fox News misinformation around COVID and said, you know, essentially, you're 
you're killing your audience. The Fox News audience is the oldest amongst cable news. And Rupert took no responsibility and said, our audience is old and dying of other things and people are just blaming COVID. And so I think it's that, that ability to compartmentalize that while on the one hand, Rupert Murdoch is in lockdown, wearing masks, um, taking COVID seriously, while his audience is being fed information and, and, and possibly dying because of it, I don't like, I couldn't sleep at night, but you know, apparently he mm. sleeps, I'm sure very well. Well, he has a, a much more expensive bed than you do. Yes, exactly. But, but that is what's always, you know, grinding my gears covering Fox and covering the Murdochs, which is he, he, he seems passive in the moments where he needs to be active and then active in moments where he doesn't. So when it comes to and the 2020 the election, biggest, yeah. you know, yeah, he's, 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 he's emailing Suzanne Scott, the head of Fox News Media, about like how bad it is and how bad Trump is. And then he's not doing a damn thing to influence or change or shape what's actually on the airwaves. Well, I think the number one reason is that the, the only thing Rupert cares about is money. Um, and you know, you'll hear that over and over again, profit. You know, he is, yes, he is conservative, his politics lean right, but his ultimate allegiance is to the bottom line. And I think when he saw the Fox News audience abandoning Fox for Newsmax and One America, you know, he, he could email Suzanne Scott that it was crazy that Trump was disputing the election, but he wasn't going to tell them not to say it because they needed the ratings. And I think that goes for the same of COVID, of not, of not disciplining um, Fox hosts from, you know, shunning masks and mm. other uh, public health um, policies. And, you know, that's, uh, and then just one final note on the passivity idea that you bring up. That's the, the major point of departure for me um, between Brian Cox's character on Succession and Rupert Murdoch is that, you know, Logan Roy on Succession is this lion. He's a, he's a force of nature. He dominates every room he walks into. He s- screams and and bellows and Rupert is very different. He's very conflict diverse. You know, Rupert, in fact, runs away from conflict. I mean, he divorced mm. his wife by email. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Rupert famously never fires really anybody personally. He delegates it. And so, yes, he is this, you know, multi-billionaire media mogul. And yet when it comes to actually running his own company, he's very passive. All right. So we have to talk about that email, the, the, the email that ends the marriage. You actually saw a copy of the email. As a jealous reporter, I was blown away by that. Uh, Here's what the email uh, said. Jerry, I I can't do the accent or anything. Uh, Jerry, sadly, I've decided to call an end to our marriage. We have certainly had some good times, but I have much to do. Uh, Dot, dot, dot. My New York lawyer will be contacting yours immediately. There's so much to to say about that. Um, I know. Well, first of all, um, yeah, not even, you know, sit down to try to talk it out or even a phone call without getting into sources. You know, that email had been forwarded to to her friends and and the people that I had been speaking to. And I was so grateful to a source for sharing that email (laughs) because I think it's so it's it's a primary document and it's so revelatory of the way in which. I, you know, when I think of Rupert Murdoch, I think of a shark. I think of the kind of animal that just has to keep has to keep swimming to move. You know, sharks die if they stop, and that's Rupert. He just keeps moving forward. He's ninety two, huh. and you know, he wants to divorce his wife. He sends an email, has the lawyers make a deal, and he moves right. on to to the next girlfriend. He has much to do. He says he has much to do. So that is very Logan Roy of him. 
And you report, according to her friends, that she did not see this coming, that she was blindsided uh, when the marriage ended. But Rupert was off to a, another potential wife. Uh, the, the newest name is Anne Leslie Smith. Uh, he apparently started dating her months ago, uh, popped the question. They were engaged briefly. A New York Post columnist Cindy Adams broke the news about her boss getting engaged. But then, Gabe, you broke the news. The engagement is off. Um, I, I think what happened, tell me if I'm wrong, you were working on this cover story. You were writing about the new relationship. And then you heard from a source that the engagement was off. The marriage was off. So you had to, to get it out there before the story broke. Is that right? <laughs> yes. It's uh... – <laughs> The, the the threat of getting scooped on Rupert's engagement of the things that we occupy our, our, our time, Brian. So this was one of the strangest episodes of Rupert Murdoch's um, long and, and colorful career. His, his this, dating career. <laughs> yeah. You know, all the other women um, that he's been involved with, you know, were formidable women. And Anne Leslie Smith kind of comes out of nowhere. She's the, you know, her past is kind of opaque. We we didn't really know much about her childhood. She was married to a, a rich San Francisco railroad heir who, you know, she divorced and then she finds God in a coffee shop and and then she marries a country music singer and then he dies and suddenly she's on the arm of Rupert Murdoch. And I, I think the kids, from what I heard, um, the family was um, very alarmed that, you know, she had suddenly found her way to Rupert's side. And, um, mm. and then, you know, I think voices just voices have got to him and the, um, the engagement was, was suddenly called off. And one of my sources said that Anne's, um, religious views were becoming more and more, ext- you know, extreme. And she, she at one point said that Tucker Carlson was a, a messenger for heaven. And I think, um, Tucker Carlson might be many things, but Rupert did not believe, go along with that. And that was Mm. one of the last straws of the engagement. So do you look at that and say, this this is what Rupert Murdoch built. He's stuck catering to people that he has radicalized, people who think Tucker Carlson is a messenger from God. Yeah. I thought it was so ironic that Rupert looked like he was going to spend the rest of his life with somebody who was the embodiment of the Fox News audience. And, Ah. you know, this became too much even for, apparently for Rupert Murdoch. Mm. And so I think this shows you, Brian, I think this whole story shows you the power of mass media and what can happen when millions of people are fed misinformation day in and day out for years. It has, you know, serious long-term anti-democratic effects on, on American culture. And I think Rupert personally said, okay, I don't agree with Ann Leslie Smith, but you know, there's on any given night, there might be 3 million Ann Leslie Smiths watching Fox News and, and believing that the election was stolen and whatever other conspiracies are swirling around on the right. <laughs> After talking to all these people in Murdoch world and looking at the Dominion trial and looking at the collapse of Rupert's um, uh, fourth marriage and you know possible fifth and his estrangement from his son, James, and is uh, Lachlan and James's feud. And I mean, I just looked at all of these kind of broken relationships and I just felt sad. I mean, I felt sad because this was, this is a family and a company that put profit above all else. And to what, to what end? I mean, what do they have to show for it? Right. I mean, it's a broken family and fundamentally it's a broken news network. Maybe when Rupert wrote to Jerry and said, I have much to do, 
maybe maybe what he meant is I've got to fix this. <laughs> I've got to fix the family, I, fix Fox News. But I don't know how he would go about doing that right now. All of their fates are in some ways wrapped up in this trial. I mean, have, have you thought, Gabe, about what it's going to mean if Rupert Murdoch has to actually take the stand? You know, we're actually going to see him possibly in public uh, testifying. Imagine, Brian, having any of these people um, who are participating in this trial possibly, mm. you know, have to be under oath, have to answer our questions. I mean, that's a reporter's dream. So I'm going to be following, you know, this trial day in and day out because it's, you know, uh, something uh, that I wish I could have done uh, for years. And now here these Dominion lawyers are able to actually, you know, make these people answer their questions. Mm. Gabe, thank you so much. Great talking with you. Good to be here. Thank you, Brian. And that was Gabe Sherman, special correspondent at Vanity Fair. You can read all of his reporting at VanityFair.com. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. We had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis. And I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at VanityFair.com backslash newsletters. We will be back next Thursday covering the first week of the trial, opening arguments and all the rest. Until then, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.